We are going to pray and get right into our passage this morning, all right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth and, and your word. And as Tom just reminded us of the light that comes as we, as we pay attention to your word, as we listen to it, as we see what it, what it is calling us to, what it lays out for us, the way in which it tells us to live, not because you want to control everything, but because you want us to know what it means to have life, to really have life. Um, so guide us as we look, as we think, that we might, I was going to say think your thoughts, but that we might uh, certainly uh, have our minds open to you in such a way that more and more your thoughts become our thoughts, uh, that we grasp a hold of you. Uh, so guide, we pray, with thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're going to be in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the, um, the, the, the actual Karen for prayer is just two verses, 11 and 12. It kind of starts in, in verse 3 a little bit. You'll see here in a second. Um, you'll see verse 3, or excuse me, verse 11 and 12 starts with, it says, in view of this, which begs the question, in view of what? Yeah, I mean, if it's in view of this, what, 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 what is it in view of? So we're going to start in verse 3, really. So if you want to back up to uh, verse 3, uh, we'll start reading that, and you'll see what, uh, what prompted or, or guides this, this prayer um, as, as he gets into it. But, uh, so uh, verse 3, 2nd uh, Did I say 1st Thessalonians when we started? It should be 2nd Thessalonians, and that's what it is there. 2nd Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. The words were tripping over my tongue on the way out there. Verse 3, we must always thank God for you, brothers. This is right, uh, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering, uh, since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward the, with the rest of you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Almost, almost makes us feel like we're back in the Old Testament there, doesn't it? Uh, verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength in that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. And in view of this, uh, we always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of his calling and will by his power fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's an awful lot of information really here in verses 3 through 10, and it touches a lot of subjects. I'm not going to go into real depth. I'm not going to go into those in depth. What I hope to do is go into them deep enough to give you an understanding of those to grasp a hold of those and then help you see how verse 11 and 12 what he when he's you know when he's talking there 
uh, how that, that flows from there and, you know, that, that connection there. Uh, he seems to really start his prayer in verse 3 um, when he says, We must always thank God for you. And he goes on, it starts to go on, and then uh, he saw a squirrel or something. And, and he, he diverges just a little bit, uh, wanders before getting back to why he's thanking them in verse 11. Uh, but those verses there kind of lay the base for the prayer that, you know, where, when, he, when he makes that change and gets back to it and says, in view of all this, uh, verse 3, he says, we must always thank God for you, brothers. Uh, this is right since your faith is flourishing. Um, you know, thank God for growth in faith. Now, I'm not just saying that. I'm saying that as, as a guidance for prayer for us as a guidance for prayer, you know, to, to thank God for growth and faith. I did that this week um, as I was praying for you with those slips you gave me. I, I generally do that on Tuesday mornings, on Tuesday mornings before I, before I sit down to uh, start studying. I spend time in prayer, you know, for, for all of you. I, I go through those slips that uh, you turned in at the beginning of the year, uh, you know, that lays out some prayer things for the year. And, and I have a couple other lists that I, that I use. But as I was praying through that, um, I got to a couple of names. And I just, you know, just God, and it was before I even got into studying this. And God just impressed me, you know, with the growth that I've seen in them. And what an encouragement it was to me. You know, and I, I just took time to thank God for their growth, you know, for the growth I've seen in them. Now, you know, you, you, certainly you can pray these things for others. You can pray these for yourself as well. But when you think of growth in faith, I think a lot of times it's we see it in others. It's not kind of like, oh, well, I guess I really grew in faith. Look at that. Um, I, <laughs> I do remember one, one person uh, where his growth and faith really, really uh, stood out. Um, before as a pastor at the Christian Missionary Alliance Church we um, attended was in a basketball league. Now, if you've ever been in a church basketball league, uh, you know that is one of the places where it's horrible. It's generally a horrible witness for Christ. It is, you know, the competitiveness is just, it's, it's pathetic. It's, it's uh, you know, and, and one of the most aggravated situations I've ever had in church in a church setting was me playing in a basketball team and it was at Broadway Christian, you know, and we're in their gym and I just didn't like the way this one guy uh, uh, was playing. Anyway, uh, it was really bad. Well, one of the things that stuck out to me about when I was thinking of growth and faith, when we were playing on with the, you know, when I was relatively new Christian and playing on, I wasn't playing on the basketball team. I was just there and one of the guys on our basketball team was also a new Christian. I mean, like, we're just talking, you know, weeks. You know, it was just a number of weeks when he committed his life to, to the Lord. And and, and the um, it took the turn for church basketball and got a little rough. And uh, and somebody was had gotten a little rough with him. He's a big guy, though. He wasn't a guy you wanted to get rough with. And uh, so he... You know, he turned and he looked at at the rest of us and he said, "It's a good thing I'm a Christian now." You know, and and he did and he did he didn't retaliate. He didn't retaliate at all. And I thought, growth in faith. You know, he, he sees some growth in, in, in faith there. You know, now here, uh, you know, as, as uh, Paul is writing, he's 
He is not talking here about when they came to that revelation of Christ. That is something to give. That is something to give thanks for. You know, when you come to that place of of uh, that relationship with Christ, that is something to give to give thanks for. But it shouldn't stop there. You see, that's that's not the that's not the only time. Here, Paul is referring to their increased dependence on the Lord and their increased confidence in the Lord. And this is what he's talking about when when he's when he's giving thanks. You know, often our thanks is related, you know, to our own well-being and the way the Lord provides for us. And again, that's a good thing to give thanks for. I mean, those are certainly good things to give thanks for. But what if if that if what we most often give thanks for is our own well-being, if we often most often give thanks for our own well-being and, and the way God has provided for us, and again, those are good things to give thanks for, but if that's what we most often give thanks for, it kind of shows a little bit where our heart is. kind of shows a little bit of a, of a self, self-centered, self-focused uh, you know, thing there. It reveals what we value most, and what we too often value most is what's going on with me. You know, and again, it's not that we don't pray about those things, but what takes, you know, what 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 takes, that, that you know, predominance in 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 your life. You know, uh, faith is certainly easier when when um, life is normal. You know, when we're not challenged, life is much easier when we're not challenged. You know, and even even faith in growing, it's it's easy to have faith when things are going well, isn't it? Read the book of Job. And in the beginning of the book of Job, you know, it says Satan was, you know, the angels and, and they, these guys came back from walking the earth and Satan came in and, you know, he says, and God says, do you consider my servant Job? And what does Satan say? Well, yeah, it's just because you've given him everything. It's easy when you give him everything. That's a paraphrase, so I should put dude in there. Yeah, it's easy when you give this dude everything. You know, that's easy then. You know, but, but strike him, smite him, and then you'll see, you know. This guy's just going to turn. He won't. He won't. He won't give a rip anymore. And that you see the unfolding of that then through the book of Job. And Job, you know, through those struggles, and he struggles, and through those struggles, he he still remains strong. But faith is certainly easier when life is going along well and we're not challenged. The Thessalonians here were not experiencing normal. Notice what it says. They were in midst of persecution. The end of verse four. He says. Well, he says, verse 4, he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. In those, while you are in the midst of those. We don't like persecutions and afflictions. The, the word, you know, the word to me, crushing distress, you know, that, with that, that crushing distress, uh, it, it literally means, to, you know, to put the flight, to, to drive away. It's a, a, it's a, a pressure, a, a pressing together, the pressure of anything that burdens the spirit. And he says here, your endurance. You know, we boast about your endurance, you know, that, that, to be able to hold up against something, to be able to bear it, to be firm. This is, this is what the word means. And in, face, in the face of all that, in the face of all that was coming against him, it says that they have grown in their faith. Their life was clearly stamped with an increasing trust in the Lord, an increasing trust in his word, an increasing trust in the gospel message that they received, that Jesus Christ makes a difference in life. 
And, and it was increasingly evident in there. They were, they were stretching upward in spiritual maturity, despite the opposition, despite the opposition that was there. And we face opposition. Whether it is whether it is you know your your own uh, a physical challenge that comes along you know whether whether it's something that's going on in your life you know and in your body and you're battling that or or whether it's it's you know the, the, whether it's somebody that sandpaper God's using that you know might be your coworker your you know your spouse your spouse what uh you, you know not not mine your your uh, you know whatever it is whatever it is that that is that is that is causing you you know to to chafe just a little bit uh just a little bit of chafing is is uh, not bad for a short while but you know in the long run it's tough it's tough when i used to run marathons and boy that seems like ancient history anymore um you know, you could put up with a little, a, a little chafing, but um, then it really got to you. So what they would have, they would have water stops, and that, you know, which of course everyone knows you need water. But <laughs> what would happen is you'd be at a water stop, and there would be somebody there holding up, holding up a, 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 a piece of cardboard like this, smeared with Vaseline. Because what you would do as you ran by then, you would you would just put it and then wherever, you know, whatever's, you know, if it's rubbing, you, you know, your arms are tired from right, you get some of that and you just smear it there. Because a little bit of chafing, you see, uh, takes a toll in the long run. So when he's talking about, when he's talking about here, you know, about, about that, their endurance, that's endurance for that long haul. You know that that even even some of those little the the big things we see coming and the big things when we see coming sometimes we can brace ourselves with those little things with those those little things uh, you know that you ever use your little toe to find furniture <laughs> uh, you know what I mean there huh it's just that little toe that little toe we got all these other guys you know and but when we're walking now it's that little toe that starts talking to us you see so it's, it's not always those 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 big things when he talks about that that endurance you know and he says in the face of all that they've grown their life was clearly stamped with that increasing trust uh, you know, and they were stretching God. They were he was thanking God for the growth in their faith, regardless of those challenges that were there. But then he goes on. There's more. He says, we must always thank God for you. That word. Uh, I always, you know, what I have learned going through these, you know, and sharing these things with you, I have learned how narrow sometimes my prayer life is. When I look at these things and these prayers, and he says, we must always thank God for you, brothers. Always. That word always just grabs me. That consistency, that, 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 I was going to say repetition, but it's more than repetition. It is that realization, that continued realization of what is there. He says, we must always thank God for you, brothers. This is right since your faith is flourishing in the love for each one of you. 
For the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Thank God for increasing love for others. Now here he is not talking about that sentimental feeling. You know, you might, you know, you might start liking people more, and that's a good thing too, you know, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about those sentimental feelings. He's talking about that practical, that practical working of love for one another, that practical outworking of what's going on. The, the love each one of you has for another is increasing. You know, churches are made up of, of various people. I mean, they're, they, you know, they're, they're just a, a wide variety of backgrounds, a wide range of ages, all sorts of interests, different levels of education, uh, an enormous assortment of jobs. Uh, even, you know, even uh, you know, in the good old days when we had 15 or so people working all at, at the hood, um, uh, all doing different things, though. You see, but just it's an enormous difference of of people and personalities that God brings together, and it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing when when we can be have that connection, you know, because of Christ and what He's done, which is which is you know what they're what they're doing here, and that. That's the thing that holds us together. The thing that holds us together is that relationship to Christ. Uh, through all that diversity, you know, even with the differences, we're together in our pursuit of Christ. Uh, you know, and he's, he's talking here uh, you know, about what a great thing it is, that increased love for one another. When churches lose that, when, when, when churches lose that, you know, that, that, that whole uh, sight of our, of our primary allegiance to Christ, then we begin to fight and to push, you know, and, and to push for their own way and for what pleases them. I was talking with some other pastors uh, uh, early, during the week, and you know, and, and I told them, you know, I've I've been in the ministry forty three years, and I can only remember one time where, you know, where uh, somebody really came against me. Uh, maybe there were more. I only remember one, which. If there were more, then I'm glad I only remember one. But uh, you know that that whole thing, that that whole thing of you know, uh, I told him. I said, I, I've I've been in two churches. I said the first one for nine years. I said I've been at Northside. Well, started started my 34th year this month. Um, I just don't remember a lot of bickering and fighting. That's a great thing. That is something to give thanks for. That is something to be thankful for. You know, that, that, that increased love for one another. Not pushing for our own way, but together being able to seek after what Christ would want for us, what he would have for us. And when we can grow in our understanding, you know, that we're loved by Christ Jesus, that, you know, we're loved, that then that love for one another grows as well. That love is an evidence of God's grace in our life. And the world takes notice. Jesus told his followers, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, how if you have love for one another. 
I find it interesting he said this. He said, now this was, the 13th chapter of John is the Last Supper. And after the Last Supper, and uh, you know, he washes their feet. And then he says, I'm, a, I'm, I'm just, a, I'm, I'm troubled because one of you is going to betray me. What? One of you is going to betray me. What? Who is it? John, ask him who it is. Is it? Yeah, what? 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 You know, and they all start talking. Well, then it comes, you know, and they find out. Well, they didn't find out. Well, it turns out it was Judas. If they would have found out it was Judas, it would have been pound on Judas time. But, they, you know, to us it seems obvious. It didn't to them. Then Judas is dismissed. And then Jesus says, you know, he says, by this, all people will know you're my disciples as you have love for one another. And I, I read that as I was studying the sermon, and I thought, man, was he preparing them for their response, you know, when they, when they came and saw Judas again? Uh, you know, he said, you know, in something that could turn them against one another, he says, by this, you, you know, all men will know that you're my disciples. Well, we touched on this next point a little bit, you know, looking at their growth and faith. It also stand on its own, you know, thank God for perseverance under trial. At the end of verse 4 where he says, In all the persecutions and, act and afflictions you endure, I'm thanking God. I boast about you because you stand firm among God's, you know, you, that endurance, that faith in all the persecutions. Because their faith had increased, because their love had increased, they could better stand under the persecutions and afflictions they were in the midst of. They were spiritually enough, they were spiritually strong enough to stand for Christ under pressure. That's a compelling testimony to the grace of God. You know, that you can stand strong for Christ under that pressure, strengthened, you know, strengthened uh, by their growing faith and their growing love. They press on, they continue on for Christ Jesus, it says. In all of these, in, in all of these, growth in faith and love, standing strong under pressure uh, against the antagonists, you know, the opposition, uh, you know, looking for signs of God's grace in their life and thanking God for them. And he says in verse 5, it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment, so you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. You see, as a result of their growing faith, a result of their growing love, which showed their sincere commitment to Christ Jesus, they were, uh, you know, they will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, he says. They will be counted worthy of his kingdom. It's a picture of perseverance, not, not of work salvation. He is showing that perseverance, that God has worked in their life, and it shows through their perseverance. It's not that they have worked and God's rewarding them. It's that, they, that, that, that faith has grown, and it is stabilized to the point that their perseverance is what's showing and what's obvious. Well, then come some verses we think, is this the New Testament or is this the Old Testament? You know, uh, we struggle with a bit. Um, if we take them out of context, if you take them out of context, you'll struggle with them a bit. Verse 6, since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward uh, with rest you who are afflicted along with us, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will repay the penalty 
these will excuse me these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Now this is not a picture of God punishing those who don't have a relationship with him. That's not what this is. This is a picture of the result of what happens to those who choose to reject Christ Jesus. That's the picture you see here. It, it, it is not of God punishing them. It is, it is a picture of the result that comes when someone rejects, rejects Christ Jesus, when they reject that relationship with him. You know, God's holiness demands retribution. We don't like that word, but it's, it's a reality. God's holiness demands retribution because of the offense to his holiness. Because of that offense to his holiness. Because if there is, if there is no consequence, you need to grasp this, if there is no consequence, then holiness is simply a myth. If unholy conduct and holy conduct are treated the same, then there is no difference and holiness is simply a myth. You see, if unrighteous conduct and righteousness reap the same, get, end up with the same, the same result, the same reward, then there is no difference and there is no such thing as righteousness. But there is such a thing as holiness. And because there is such a thing as holiness and righteousness, his holiness demands retribution because of the offense. But don't stop there because neither does the, the gospel here. But God's love sends his own son to absorb that retribution on behalf of others. You see, God's holiness demands retribution, and God's love sends his own son to absorb that retribution on behalf of others. And what we have is, is the cross, and the cross is irrefutable evidence that God's holiness demands retribution. That cross is irrefutable evidence that God's holiness demands retribution as Christ died on the cross. And that cross also stands as a measure of God's love because Christ took the penalty. Romans chapter 3 puts it this way. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Everyone has sinned and falls short of that glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, all have sinned, but God has given Christ to absorb that penalty for sin. He says, uh, through the, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation, as that payment, as, as that one that offsets that, that debt that was, that was there, that propitiation by his, by his blood through faith to demonstrate uh, his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed 
to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be just. He might be just. That penalty for sin is real. But he is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The cross stands as both that testimony that sin sin exacts a penalty. But it also stands as the as the reality that God's love provided in his son on the cross provided the one, the one who absorbs that penalty that sin endures. That sin that sin brings. It's God's holiness and God's love. Forgiveness is never apart from the cross. Forgiveness is never a product of love alone. Well, God loves everyone. Everyone's going to be saved. No, that's not the reality. Forgiveness is only possible because there has been an actual offense and there has been a real sacrifice to offset that offense. Retribution, you know, retribution for offenses is a reality. And if somebody rejects the forgiveness provided through Christ Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, then they choose to take that retribution on themselves. Verse 9 is the description. And it's the description of the worst part of hell. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. The worst part of suffering in hell is not from the flames. It's not from the fire and that burning sulfur and all that picture that we always get. The worst suffering in hell is that eternal separation from God and his glory. To be eternally separated from God and his glory. The final picture is not a good one for those who reject Christ for those who do not take that forgiveness that is offered. Some people picture hell as as a place uh, where people cry out to be given another chance, and God is the bad guy who won't allow that. But that is not the picture of hell that is given in Scripture. The reality is much different. Repentance is needed. You see, repentance is needed for someone to find forgiveness. Repentance simply means that changing your mind and agreeing with God that what he says about sin, that what God says is sin, truly is sin. And it's not that, that working you know, our, our way out of it is, it is realizing that he, and we, we turn from our own way of righteousness and turn to God and what he's given us in Christ, that repentance. Ezekiel 33 says, Tell them, as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure... In the death of the wicked. You see, it's not that God's this bad guy. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he says, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die? Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their own way of of doing things, to turn from their own values of righteousness to what he says. Romans chapter 2, 
Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, to turn and to see what he has offered? Second Peter chapter 3. The Lord does not delay his promises, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Isaiah chapter 30, this, the, the, the circle I had in your outline, you know, it's, it's in your outline, because here, here, great picture for it. It says, for this is what the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. There is the problem. There is the problem, an unwillingness to repent, but you were not willing. There is absolutely no indication anywhere in Scripture of repentance in hell. That when someone goes to hell that, you know, that they're crying out for another chance. There is no evidence anywhere in Scripture of that. The closest you'll come is in uh, Luke 6, I jotted it down. Yeah, Luke chapter 6 where uh, the rich man and Lazarus, they, they both die, and it says that, you know, that they're separated by this great gulf. And what does the rich man do? The rich man is not begging for forgiveness. The rich man just has, you know, there's two simple things there. One is, just please send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and give me a, just a few drops of water to relieve this suffering. And then he says, you know, send someone... Send someone to warn my brother. Send Lazarus to warn my brothers, you know, because I don't want them to end up here. There is zero indication that he says, I was wrong and God was right. There is, he, he, never, he never repents of what he did. All he did is he wanted some relief from the suffering and he wanted his brothers warned. And what he wanted to do is to be able to hold on to his own beliefs and hold on to his own way. And there is zero picture, zero, zero evidence of a, of a picture anywhere uh, of someone, of someone asking, you know, of, of people in hell begging for forgiveness. People arrogantly refuse to acknowledge God as God. And they will not give up on being the center of their own thoughts and desires, of their life revolving around themselves. They won't accept forgiveness. And, you know, too many don't think that they've done anything to deserve hell, but what they have done is the ultimate sin in rejecting a relationship with God, in wanting to be God of their own lives. The punishment fits the crime. You want no God? You have no God. C.S. Lewis said, uh, you know, he said, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. They want a life without God, and they receive a life without God. God is not unloving, but has gone to great lengths to show his love and grace to everyone. The contrast begins to unfold in verse 10. He says, in that day, when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who have believed, because our testimony 
among you was believed. The difference here, the difference is these people have not rejected God. They have believed the testimony about Jesus Christ. They didn't reject, they believed that testimony. And in verse 11, Paul continues with the prayer he began back in verse 3. He says, and in view of this, in view of what he just talked about, in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of his calling and will by his power fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith. That God will consider them worthy of their calling. Pray to live like we are God's people. We are called to be his people. That's the calling. Pray to live like we are God's people. Live a transformed life. Now, grab hold of that reality that there are no excuses. Okay? I don't want to hurt your feelings or step on your toes. But, you know, get your safety shoes ready because, you know, okay. it's not the way you were raised. It is, you know, it, it, it's, it's not the way you were raised that is to blame. It's not because your parents were divorced that you're, that, you know, you're like, it's not because of the abuse you suffered. Now, All those might be very real. And all of those certainly could have produced some suffering. And all of those do have an effect on your life. But the reality is, you make the choice to sin or not sin. You make the choice to accept God's forgiveness or to reject it. You make that choice. Think back to the very first time in the Garden of Eden. And God comes over and over again and gives them opportunity to repent, opportunity to repent, opportunity to repent. That's another sermon. But, uh, you know, he, he, he comes, you know, and, and he says, uh, you know, to the man, what, what have you done? What does he say? It's not my fault, it's her fault. He comes to the woman and he says, what are you doing? You ate from the tree, I told you not to. It's not my fault, it's that serpent's fault. You see, and what they were doing, they were all saying, you know, they were all giving these excuses. It's because of, it's because, it's because, it's because you gave me this woman. It's because you put us in this garden and the serpent was here. It's because you made the serpent and all this stuff. And God, God what does God do? He said, he holds each one of them responsible for the choice they made. What did they do? They rejected each opportunity that he gave them to repent. What is this you have done? Fall on your knees and say, I'm sorry, God, I sinned and I sinned against you. They didn't do it. They made an excuse. You know, why did you eat from this tree? Fall on your knees and repent and say, I'm sorry, God, I did what you told me. Didn't do that. Made an excuse. The only one who didn't, the only one in that story who didn't make an excuse, the serpent, the devil. He's the only one that didn't make an excuse. There are no excuses, you see. It's the choice you make. You make a choice. And instead, you know, in, instead of choosing sin, 
choose to live a transformed life. Every time that opportunity comes, choose to live a transformed life. God has called you to be his, and part of that calling is to live a transformed life. Ephesians chapter 4, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Choose to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Colossians chapter 1 uh, he says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Make those choices, he says, make those choices to live that life worthy. Make those choices to please him in every way. Make those choices to bear fruit in every good work. Make those choices to grow in the knowledge of God. Live up to what Christ has done on the cross. Don't make a mockery of his sacrifice. Live up to all that it means to be a Christian. Grow in your Christian maturity. Become increasingly holy, self-denying, loving, a person of integrity, saturated with the knowledge of God and His Word, trusting and obeying God. This is is not a call to simply try harder. This is not what he's saying. It's not a call to simply try harder. This is a call to live by His power. It's a call to live, by his, to live by his power. That's what he says, living out a growing trust in God. He says, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith. Living by, we, we, we can all have all, we can have all sorts of wonderful ideas and all sorts of, you know, of, of these desires. We say we're going to live for God, we're going to serve him with our life, yet somehow we never get, actually get around to doing them. We have these plans, but we never get around to doing them. We choose other things. Begin making choices to take a step to put those ideas into practice, those ideas of following God and living. Make those choices uh, for goodness and make those choices to take those next step of faith. Verse 12, he says, So that the name of our Lord Jesus uh, will be glorified by you, and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Choose to live for his glory. Choose to live for his glory. Stop worrying about what others might think of you if you actually live for Christ instead of yourself. Stop worrying about what they will think of you. Quit trying to please people and, try and choose instead to please God as your priority. God needs to be the center of our lives. You know, sin, you know, sin is simply living with yourself as the center. You know, to give control of your life to anyone, anything other than God. And it's usually ourselves. Interesting the way he words this. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him. He says, and you by him. Realize one day we too will be glorified. One day we will be made perfect. One day we will have a resurrection body as the same order of Jesus. One day we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. One day we will be glorified. 
Romans chapter 8 says, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's not just something in the future. It's even now he wants us to be transformed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the image of from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed. He, and He's willing to help us. He says, and this is from the Lord. You know, he's willing to help us to be what He asks us to be. You know, the Thessalonians, He says, so that the, the name of our Lord will be glorified by you and you by Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace. We are also sanctified by grace. The reality is we are gloriously transformed by His grace. By His grace. As you think about prayer, thank God for growth in faith. Thank Him for increasing love for others and the strength to persevere under trial. You know, pray that you will live like you're God's person, living by His cho- by His power, choosing to live for His glory, and through it all, through it all, realize we are being and will be gloriously transformed by His grace. We are being even now, gloriously transformed by His grace, and we will be even more gloriously transformed by His grace. Let's pray together. Father, what a gift You have given us. In Your grace, by Your grace, and the reality of Your grace. What a glorious gift this is. Not something we have earned, but something You have given us because of your love for us. Thank you for that reminder of the cross that sin has a penalty. That it is real. And the penalty is real. And thank you for absorbing that penalty of your son on the cross. We don't deserve it, but you give it as a gift of your love, as an act of your grace. Help us to live as people who are transformed and being transformed and will be totally transformed by the grace and power of you. Thank you for what you've done on that cross through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reality of what it means to have a relationship with you. Continue that outworking of it. Father, that you would be glorified by the way we live, by the people we are, by your transforming power in us. To bring glory and honor to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.